Welcome to the Grace Fellowship Church of Ephrata podcast. Our desire is to help you grow in your journey with Jesus, no matter where you are. For more information, please check out our website at www.gfchurch.net. We are going to dive into God's Word. Again, if you are a guest, we've been going through the story of the prodigal son the last few weeks, uh, but we've been looking at it through different lenses. The one thing about this story that Charles Dickens himself said was a masterful written story or a masterful told story, which not that Jesus really needed his confirmation, but it's interesting to see somebody say this about him, is that you can see this story through three different lenses. And those lenses are different characters. The first week we looked at the prodigal son or the wayward wasteful son, the extravagant son who blew money. Then you can look at it through the second, which is the father, the extravagant father, the one who had grace on his son. We looked at him last week. I'll talk about him again in a second. And then today we come to the oldest brother. Now, uh, depending on what generation you grew up in, um, uh, there is a very well-known basketball player, potentially the best basketball player to this day, and his name was Pistol Pete Maravich. I don't know if you're familiar with him. To the, this day, Pistol Pete still holds the uh, highest average points per game in the college game, not to mention points all total. He holds the record. And here's the thing about this. He did it when there was no three-point line and there was no shot clock. Pistol Pete was amazing. He went into the NBA. He played for about 10 years. Uh, he, unfortunately, his career was ended early because of bad knees. Anyone you know, know what that is? You know, anyone? Okay, ba- yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah, bad knees. And so he was not able to continue his career, and it's a shame because if you watch video of Pistol Pete, he was incredible. Some of the passes this guy would do, he was unstoppable. If he would have been able to continue to play, he may have gone down as the second greatest player of all time with Charles Barkley being the first. I'm not biased. Um, I'm a Sixer fan. I'm sorry. I can't give it to anyone but a Sixer. So maybe I'll put Julius Serving up there. But anyway, um, Pistol Pete was an amazing guy. His career ended early. Uh, he was out in California playing. He's age 40 at this time playing basketball with some friends. He had just really come to Christ over the, the previous few years. He said he wanted to be known not as a basketball player, but as a Christian. And as he's playing uh, a pickup game out in California along with some uh, friends of his, including James Dobson from Focus on the Family, he's playing a pickup game with them. Uh, James Dobson said that he remembered Pistol Pete looked at him and said, man, I feel great. And so uh, he went and uh, James Dobson turned his back and started to walk away and then he heard a noise and he turned around. And Pete had collapsed. He was gone. Like that. What they discovered was that Pete had an irregular heart defect where one of his aortas was not the proper size, so the rest of his heart was overcompensating. It had gone undetected for years. And he was gone. No one could tell. He was playing pickup basketball. He was an amazing athlete. No one could tell on the outside because he looked like a great athlete. No one could tell that there was anything wrong on the inside with him until it was too late. Now, you may not know of anything going wrong inside of you physically. You may appear healthy. You may run and be all of this. 
uh, but there may be something wrong in you physically, in your heart. But more importantly this morning, I want to talk about those of us that may look okay as a Christian on the outside. We look great. We know all the Christianese terms. We're at church every Sunday, Wednesday, and any other time that the doors are open, you show up. But deep down inside, something is really wrong. See, there's a sickness in us that Christians especially wrestle with. And it's called self-righteousness. And little do we know it, but certain events happen that all of a sudden we see it. And it's ugly. And it's nasty. And it will kill your spiritual life if not taken care of. Some of, us knows what the, uh, some of us know what this means because we may have had an experience in life that, you know, we had kept up the facade of Christianity really good and there was an event that happened that just nastiness came out of us. Judgmentalism, bitterness, all of these things that we kept hidden inside, you know, because when we come to church and someone asks you how you are, you say, fine, great, everything's great. And then we know deep down inside it's not. It's not. We kept it hidden but that moment caused it to come out and you are left there after you've seen what you have done and you've exploded sin everywhere and you ask yourself, how on earth did I get here? How did this happen? I didn't know this was in me. And it just, bleh, it came out. It came out. As I said, we want to in particular look at this sickness of self-righteousness today that many a Christian has stumbled with. And today we're going to see it in the main character of the prodigal son, in my opinion. To me, the prodigal son, I said this the first week, is mislabeled. Because knowing who is hearing this story, tax collectors and sinners, but more importantly the Pharisees, the main character of the story is actually the one we're going to hear about today. And maybe for you, if you were raised in church, you never even thought of it that way before. And this is like, whoa, hopefully it is. Because this is who Jesus wanted the Pharisees to hear about the most. Not the prodigal son, yes, the father, but more importantly, this older brother. Now, last week we talked about the extravagant father. We saw uh, the father come out and meet his son out of town to maybe potentially escort him in because everyone in town would have seen when this boy showed back up and they're like, oh yeah, that's the guy that disrespected his family. Uh-huh, yeah, let's, har let's harass him, let's call him names. And the father goes out to take the shame himself. He runs, which in that culture was seen as odd for a high society person to be running. And that was that whole gird up the loins thing and all that he would have had to have done to run out to meet him. And so he brings him in and he throws a celebration. He forgives his son before his son even really says a word. He forgives his son. And so the father has started a party. And he knows how to party. They have veal parmesan, okay? Uh, it is a young calf that has been killed with this. It's, it's amazing. Everyone in town is invited to this, including the ones that are confused why the father would forgive this kid and then we get to verse 25 and we you can follow along here on the screen there's also in the bulletin a qr code that will take you to our notes for today that you can uh, use it says this meanwhile as the party is now going the older son was in the field when he came near the house he heard music and dancing so he called one of the servants and asked him, 
what was going on. Now, pause. We have a few things to unpack in this. Um, number one, uh, it appears probably the town, because this kid has stayed with his father, that this is the good son. I'm not going to ask you if you have a sibling that, you know, everyone knew was the perfect child and it wasn't you, because uh, none of us had that happen here uh, I, I have a brother that we always tease about that and call him the good son. But uh, you get the idea. You, this kid on the outside looked like he did everything right. Never got in trouble. Never said anything wrong about his dad. And what we're going to learn is there's a little bit more underneath the surface that we did not know about. Although there were a few hints early on. This son... By all appearances, doing what he's supposed to do. He's out in the field. Now, this uh, word here, the field, uh, tells us that the father was wealthy. We knew this. But he had fields that were a distance off. The reason we know this is when he comes back, the party is going. In this culture, party started at sundown. Okay? And it says that this party's already going on. The music is going. They got people dancing. How dare we talk about that in church because we don't do that as Christians, right? <laughs> well, Jesus very possibly could have danced himself in his culture. Uh, it, it was a part of it. This is what you did. You got together and you got down, all right? It was a celebration. And this celebration has been going a while when the sun comes back, which means he came from a distance to get back home. And so as he comes in, uh, one thing to note about this, and this is why, where we begin to see that there's a few things going underneath the surface here with this kid. Number one, I didn't really mention this a whole lot the first week. The first thing with him is that he didn't defend his father. When the son said, I want my inheritance, the eldest brother was not there going, you are the second born. Just shut your mouth, okay? Stop talking. How dare you disrespect my family? You don't hear that, which tells you what's going on there. He's the oldest son. He had every right to do that. Now, here's another thing that you won't think a lot about uh, or maybe even know a lot about. The fact that the party is going on, it was organized by who? The father. In that culture, it was not the father's business or job to do that. Do you know whose job it was? The oldest son. Huh. Interesting. Maybe the father was just too excited that he didn't send servants out to bring the son back to organize the party. We don't know, but it is interesting that this son is not organizing the party like was his job. Which tells you, was there a strained relationship here? It says that he comes near. Note that he does not, first off, it says he comes near. He doesn't go inside, which is interesting. This is his house, okay? Everything's basically been given to him because the father gave him two-thirds of the inheritance all the way back in the first part of the story, and he won't go inside. And it says he calls one of the servants, and the, the word there indicates it's a younger servant, a boy who comes up, and he starts hounding him with questions. We only see one of them, but the word there means he begins to ask a lot of questions. What is going on? Who paid for this? Why is this happening? Who, does, who gave the permission to do all of this? Who killed... Fifi, my veal over there, okay, my cow. Who killed that cow? He begins to hound this young kid with questions because, you see, there's something wrong with him. There's a problem with him. And this is the first one, if you're following along with the notes, is that the problems with big brother number one is that he's suspicious of the father. As the young kids put it, he's sus. I had to throw that in there for my son. 
his father's a little sus. He's suspicious. Something's going on. I don't trust why my father, who has raised me and given me two-thirds of his inheritance, and he didn't have to, is throwing a party. This happens in church and Christianity in general. Suspicion of other individuals, other believers. And this is really seen in something that it gets referred to in church as legalism. One of the hardest parts of legalism is that people are suspicious of anyone that does not agree with them. Doctrinally, uh, methodology of church or Christianity and how you witness, they begin to become suspicious. They look for evil motives in everything. Oh, this pastor is getting really, really well known. Well, there's probably something out there that we can find to, you know, find a problem with him because he's not on our team. Oh, that person goes to the movies? Well, they're probably, uh, you know, one who's going to see a, a movie that we shouldn't be watching as Christians, but we aren't. We're at home. We're watching good stuff. Suspicion of other people. And the son here, guess what? He's suspicious of the father. He would make a great legalist. Suspicion of other people in Christianity or suspicion of the father in this case. He doesn't trust his father's most motivations. And these are the people that grow up, they live in their parents' basement, and they start blogs about other Christians. They'll take a sentence of a sermon from a well-known believer or well-known Christian, and then they will tear it apart because they don't trust the motives of the individual. To them, they're evil. And this oldest brother would have been fantastic. He would have had a great blog, okay? Everyone would have been following that. That's the first problem we begin to see with this son is his suspicion of his father's motives. Verse 27 goes on and says this. The servant looks at him, this young boy who's been hounded with questions, says, well, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and Sound. Now, you have to think that the oldest brother at this moment's like, wait a minute, that calf was mine. And dad just decided to take it into his own power and kill it himself. Excuse me? He's thinking about himself. And the servant points out something here. He says that the brother is back safe and sound. The, the Greek word for this is actually the same Greek word that we get the word hygiene from, which means healthy. Your brother is back healthy. And he's not just talking about physical health. He's talking about the fact that your brother is right back to where he was before he ever answered with or asked for his inheritance. He's been fully restored, fully healthy. He's back. And this does not set well with the brother. The fact that this son has gone off and done anything, it irritates him. Not only that, but you would think that if this son truly loved his father and knew his father and trusted his father, that this son would have been like, dad seems pretty excited about this and I love my dad. He's been good to me. I'm going to go in and celebrate. You see, there's a verse in Romans 12 that says that we should weep with those who weep. We should rejoice with those who rejoice. You would think that the son, if he truly loved his father, truly cared about his father, that when he sees his father happy that the son returned, he trusted him enough to say, okay, I guess he's genuinely changed. And, the, and dad has said, this is okay, let's go dance. But he doesn't. He stays outside. 
he's there with his suspicion and, and all of this, and now he's getting irritated, and now his calf has been given away and eaten, and that's the final straw. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, that is it. I cannot believe what dad is doing. Two weeks ago, I used a, uh, an illustration I use often and will continue to use often. I put something in water. What was it? You can say it out loud. I need some interaction this morning. What did I put in water two weeks ago? There we go. I'm giving you some motion. Tea. I said that if you put tea bags in cold water, it may eventually seep out. But you put it in hot water, you better believe it's going to seep out. Well, we have now reached for the sun that moment where the heat is on and everything that has been underneath the surface is coming out. And he snaps. He is angry. He's throwing a little pity party outside. He's become a drama queen and he's refusing to go in. Even though it's his house and his father is rejoicing. He must have been seething in anger for a long time before this even happened. And it finally snaps. Now, pause. Step out of the story. Step into the audience. Tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees, who this story is targeting. At this moment, you have to think that the Pharisees were like, finally! <laughs> we were ticked off at the son because he blew all the family inheritance and disgraced his family. Then we were really ticked off at the dad because the dad is there forgiving this guy. He's not even punishing him or making him do anything. Finally, somebody with some common sense, someone who is angry about everything that has happened, and you have to think that Jesus in his mind knows their hearts and says, aha, I gotcha. Because you're going to learn that this eldest son is you Pharisees. The older brother becomes angry, refuses to go in. And so it implores that the father has to come out. And the father, who he already has a problem with, he's suspicious of, now you see something else about the son, and this is number two, is that he had a resentment of the brother and the father. He resented him, detested him. And note, I said not just the brother, but the father. What has been built up for years, finally lets go. And you will see it in the following verses. He just unloads everything that's been building up. He's had a good life, and he actually resents his dad resents him. And you see this because the oldest son refuses to come in. And instead, he begins to show what's been going on under the surface, and he disrespects his father. Huh, who else disrespected his father? Crickets, crickets, crickets. Help me out. Who else disrespected his father? The wasteful son, the prodigal son, the first son. Wow, it's almost like they're not really different than each other. Well, one just kept it really well hidden. The other just did it. And this oldest son snaps, disrespects his father. The town's there. The town sees that the son, who rightfully owns that place, that they're having this party, is not coming in. He's out there throwing a fit, making a scene in front of the whole town. In front of the whole town. And his father comes out. He leaves the celebration, which he didn't have to do. 
And he walks into Pity Party 101. As the son is throwing his little pity party about himself out there. What is interesting about the father in this is it says that he pleaded with him. His father didn't come out and say, stop being a wimp. Get inside, boy. I'm still your daddy, and I'll take you over my knee, okay? He didn't say that. He didn't threaten him. How does the father deal with him? He deals with him the same way he dealt with the other son, with kindness and with grace. He pleads with him. He didn't have to plead with him. It's his son. He's still his dad, but he loved his kid, despite how the oldest son felt about him. It goes on. And we see uh, uh, verse 29. Uh, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with all my friends. Now, don't just skip over the look part. This is one of those disrespects. If you have a teenager, you know what I'm talking about. Your kids say something and it's meant to get under your skin and you know it. It'd be like saying, uh, excuse me, mom or dad. Let me inform you because I'm the smart one here and not you. Oh, yeah, that's right. I held you in diapers, child. Um, look, look. You see the disrespect in the son. Look, all these years I've been slaving you. Slaving doesn't indicate that this kid really felt like his dad was loving on him. Now this kid reveals that I've only been doing everything because I have to. Because I'm the oldest son, and that's what I'm supposed to do. I, this indicates that he had an attitude of compulsion, not of affection or respect for the dad. It was compulsion. And then, of course, like most self-righteous people do, the son says, I have never disobeyed you, ever, even since I was a baby. Never once. I did everything you said. See, that's the thing about people who struggle with self-righteousness is they don't really see it. And the Pharisees never really saw it. The Pharisees had their little hand mirrors out, okay? I have a hand mirror here. It's not mine. Sorry. Um, and, and they all look at themselves. They're like, man, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing really, really good. And, and here's the reality. I can look in here and I can see that beautiful face of mine right now and all the age spots that are starting to show up and the grays, uh, and, and, and I can see my face, but I can't see my foot. I can't see my arm with this. So I can look like Cristiano Ronaldo, the soccer player, who runs around with his mirror because he's a pretty boy. Sorry, I had to take a shot at him because I tell my son this all the time. But he, he only sees himself and how beautiful he is, you know. Uh, but he's missing a lot of body when you're only looking at your face. A couple years ago, and this is a guilty confession, I went through a phase of sin where I, I really got into the TV show What Not to Wear. Um, and it's a fashion show if you don't know anything about it. And there was always this moment in this show where they would take the person who needed the makeover into something called the 360-degree mirror, okay? And they would send them in there and they, with a video camera to see how they responded because they would begin to see themselves, not just their face like this hand mirror. They had to see everything. And if you look in front of you, then you could see behind you and they're like, oh, I didn't know I looked like that from the backside. That's not okay, uh, I, maybe I shouldn't be wearing this kind of pants or shirt or, you know, cargo shorts, guys. You know, I, I, I shouldn't be doing this. They got a fuller perspective of what they look like. And it wasn't okay with them. See, self-righteous people, which is the third problem with the son, self-righteousness 
Self-righteousness only sees what it wants to see in itself. It doesn't see reality. And so, yeah, I'm perfect. I never disobey you, God. Uh, Dad. I'm, I'm perfect. I've never disobeyed you. It always overestimates. It glazes over the parts where it did not listen to Dad and will only focus on the times and the big accomplishments it did when he did obey. And as Christians, we can struggle with self-righteousness and think, man, God, I guess I'm employee of the month again. You got my uh, picture up there again because I'm the one that everyone else needs to be following my example. I'm the one that's got it all together. I don't know what's wrong with all these other Christians if they would just do things like me, you know, because I'm the right one. And this is how the son views himself. He's self-righteous. He only sees what he wants to see, and he's deceived himself. And you see a little bit more of his animosity towards his father and the resentment to his father. I don't want to skip over this. I'm going to get this in. But um, when he says, you know what? You didn't even give me a goat that I could have a party with my friends. Dad, let's have a goat party, you know? Uh, and, and it tells you something here. Celebrate with who? Celebrate with who? Help me out. His friends. You know who's not included in that? His family, his dad, his brother. Why is this a big deal? Once again, let's go back to the culture. How many Italians in here? Any Italians? I always love my Italian families. Yes. When you have a big celebration as a family, is it expected that the rest of the family is at least, or a good portion of them is invited in? Yes or no? Do you, are you supposed to invite the rest of the family? Yeah. Yeah, but there is no such thing as a small birthday party in some Italian families. I have friends that are Italian, so that's why I always point this out. It was like, there is no small celebration here. You better believe the family is invited. It's not even a condition. They basically just say, so when is the party going to be? We'll be there, okay? Uh, some of you have families like this. There is no small celebration. Same thing with this young man. He's saying, you know what? I'm just going to celebrate with my friends. He's leaving the family out. And yet, culturally, that was a no-no. That was a disrespect to the family. You better believe the family should be there. See, he had self-righteousness in his heart. And just like that, the Pharisees who are hearing this story would lie about their goodness because of all the good things they've done. All the good things they've done. Verse 30. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now the son starts making some assumptions, but he says, but this son of yours, which I know there are no married couples here with kids that have ever made that comment, your son just broke the window. Um, I don't ever hear that about accomplishments. Your son just, you know, got a scholarship to Harvard. I don't hear that. It's always, well, maybe that is a punishment. Anyway, um, uh, you get the idea. There is this indication of disassociating himself. Now, your son, I have nothing to do with this. I have nothing to do with you, Dad. Your son squandered your property, one-third of it, squanders it on women and wine and song, and then kill, you killed my cow. You killed my cow that you gave me. Now, this, this is the next thing that you tend to see happen with Pharisees. He begins to compare himself to other people. He compares himself to the brother. I said it a second ago. You know, the self-righteous people are like, man, if people would just be like me. Or better yet, to affirm themselves, they say, wow, they really don't care about prayer. They really don't care about giving. They really don't care about the homeless. I do. 
look at me. I'm the one. We begin to compare ourselves to, for some reason, affirm ourselves as though we are the gold standard that God wants everyone to live up to. Us. We have it right, not everyone else. And then we look down condescendingly upon everyone around us. In fact, you could say that the son in this moment is almost saying, Dad, I've never disobeyed you. He wasted everything. How about a little apology? It's almost like he expects the father to say, oh, man, you are right, son. Let's go get a couple goats. But he doesn't. I read a book last year that I mentioned a couple times, Extreme Righteousness, and it's talking about the Pharisees. It's a great book. I recommend it highly. Uh, The author said this, lest self-righteousness creep in our souls, each of us must accept these truths. If we want to prevent being self-righteous, here's how we do it. Number one, you have to accept this. My actual performance of righteousness is far lower than I think. Cruel fact. I'm not as righteous as I think I am. Number two, God's standards of righteousness are far higher than I can ever conceive, much less ever attain or reach. I am not going to be, the standard that God has set is way higher than I can even comprehend. And lastly, and people whom I despise for their lack of rightness, according to my standard, can actually be more righteous than I am. Ouch. Self-righteous people will compare themselves to others to affirm themselves that they've got it going on. God, you should be proud. I should be the first picture in your wallet. I know I'm dating myself with that, but uh, the first picture in your wallet should be me because I do it right, not everyone else, not everyone else. And you see that in the sun. Verse 31, as the story wraps up, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He says, you know what, my son, he he doesn't say, man, you're being a jerk. He says, my son. Again, he deals with this oldest son who's having a pity party, the self-righteousness fest with grace, the same way he dealt with the youngest brother says, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. This is yours. When I die, it's yours. It's not yours yet. He says this, though, but we had to celebrate. We had to. Your brother was dead. He came back to life. We call this a miracle. And I don't know too many miracles that happen that we should be like, oh, that's cool. See ya. He said, we had to. He came back. He's alive. I've restored him. Why would you not celebrate that? Why would you not want to donate to that, the stuff that isn't technically yours yet? It would be wrong for us not to. Now, remember, I talked about, well, let me uh, cover this real quick. Um, uh, One of my... uh, follows on Twitter, and I'm on Twitter rarely, but this is one of the guys I follow, John Acuff. He had this up. This was actually a quote by another comedian. He says, in this day and age, we don't root for redemption anymore. This oldest son was not rooting for redemption. We don't actually care if people change. We don't want them to become better. We want to watch them burn so we can sit back and temporarily feel better about our own lives. No one in here has done that. 
where we've taken joy in someone that we disagree with passionately, their downfall and their suffering. We've never done that. No, we have. This older brother was hoping his brother would never come back. He was hoping he would be punished. He was hoping he would be killed and knocked off the family. He wanted no redemption out of him. He wanted him to suffer so that he could feel better about himself. Remember that this story was directed at the Pharisees, and we remember back in verse 2 this reason why. We looked at this the first week. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They were ticked off that Jesus was having broken, sinful prodigals come to him. Because we've done everything right, Jesus. You should be giving us some, some you know, props here for all that we do. My point this morning is this. It is easier to win a prodigal than to convince a hypocrite. It is almost, I, I, I'll tell you, the people that seem to get the heart of what the church is all about are the ones that are the most broken because they've been to that other side and they are just grateful. And so I love people who have walked far from God. But the ones that are the hardest to convince are the ones that have convinced themselves that everything's going okay. I'm pretty good. God's got some extra points for me because of the way I've lived my life. Everyone should model after me. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. It was easier in this story for the prodigal to be one than the son, who we don't even know how this story really concludes. Jesus left it open-ended. Did the son ever turn back? We don't know. We don't know. So I close with these thoughts. How this morning can you become a Pharisee? How can we become a Pharisee? Number one is you can be suspicious of very lost people's conversions. A person very far from God, broken past, messed up everything, gotten involved in everything that we condemn in this world as believers, comes to Jesus and we're there and we're like, yeah, we'll see. I don't know if I'm buying it. They aren't doing what they should be. Did you see how they dressed when they came into church? Oh my goodness. Did you see the way they talked? Oh my goodness. Be suspicious of their conversion. That's how, number one, you can be a Pharisee. Number two, resent their imperfections. Oh my goodness, I hope there is a tattoo removal company for them because they're going to be making a fortune. Oh my goodness, they still swear from time to time. How dare they? We resent their imperfections because we have it all together right. We're the right ones. The third way, consider yourself as the gold standard of holiness. I get it all right. All my T's are crossed. All my I's are dotted. God, you're glad. I'm, I know you're pretty glad you got me, right? <laughs> I know you are because I get it right. And number four, Criticize those who don't measure up to your holiness. If you want to be a Pharisee, start criticizing. That's what the Pharisees did. Criticize people who didn't do things the way that they did it. And I'll say that as a church, we have to be careful we aren't doing this of other churches. Well, we care about blank more than them. We do blank better than them. Because when we start to do the comparison game, like the son did, 
we become pharisaical because the Pharisees always compared themselves to sinners. See, in this story, there's two kinds of sinners as I close. I said it earlier. There's ones that flaunt their sinfulness. But there's another who keeps it well hidden until God brings it out of them. And my question for you this morning is, which are you? Who am I? Am I hiding things? Let's pray. Father, this is one of those sermons that I have had to do some deep introspection in my own life. And Lord, I ask forgiveness for times that even unknowingly I have played the self-righteousness game or the comparison game. Lord, as a church, forgive us for the times that we've done that. Forgive us individually for times that we have thought more of ourselves than we should think. Or Lord, we've been suspicious of those who don't get it yet, who aren't mature like we are. Or maybe you haven't worked in their life on the areas that you will work on them. Forgive us for our self-righteousness. Thank you for the story of the prodigal son that shows somebody who should have been celebrating with his father, celebrating with his brother, celebrating that his brother was back, celebrating the miracle of changed lives, but instead chose to stay outside, separate, making embarrassment of his father, and then comparing himself to it, or to his brother, and how good he was. Forgive us for the times that we do this, knowingly and unknowingly. And Lord, change us to have a heart of gratefulness for that compassionate, extravagant Father of grace and forgiveness that we saw last week. And change us from this point forward. Lord, we pray for the prodigals, the jar that sits up here full of names of prodigals that we know. And Lord, I pray for each of those. Maybe we need to fill them for, with our names if we struggle with self-righteousness. I don't know. But Lord, the prodigals that the names are in this jar, we pray for each of them that even in this moment you would begin your Holy Spirit to do a work in them to bring them home. Show them the brokenness and end of their ways that they would turn back to you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. If you would like prayer, you can send your prayer request into prayer at gfchurch.net and we will pray for you. If you like this message, don't forget to subscribe on the podcast app, Google or Spotify. Give us a follow on Facebook and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you next week.